Right now, we're going to open up a can of whoop-ass right here on Old Fart Sports. Old Fart with the Old Fart, Kevin Herbst, and the two wet ones, Parker and Rory. Back at it again. Back at it again. Another week. Man, that was quick. That was quick. We've had the World Series in. There's uh, oh, no more basketball, no more football, excuse me, baseball, no more basketball. I know. I was telling Rory today, or saying to him, what are we gonna do to watch sports now? We're gonna we're gonna have to get some Mexican baseball or something streaming. I don't know. We're gonna look on our phasers for all the events that happened way back when people were old farts that That's are still right. around. There so you go. we're gonna be actually talking with a friend of ours, Blaze Lanfear, who is uh, well, he's the the guy that is behind the Portland Pioneers. And if you're going, well, who are the Portland Pioneers? They were around back in 1866, and we're talking Civil War era baseball. We're going to learn why uh, some of the rules when you play 500 are what they are and why they have been implemented in our games that we know today. And we're going to talk a little bit about the history of baseball as it was known then. Baseball was not one word. It was base and it was ball. And we're going to explain that and a lot of other things. As we talk to Blaze Lamphere, who is the, uh, well, he's the operator of the Portland Pioneers. Portland Pioneers are a team that uh, does get out there and and uh, runs around the bases doing their thing. So we're going to talk about that thing and a few other things when we get Blaze all lined up. But we do want to talk a little bit about some uh, baseball that ended last night, and that was the World Series. Uh, Blake Snell was pulled out, and that was a guy that a lot of people just... Uh, Really kind of scratched their head as to why they pulled him out. What was your guys' thoughts last night when you saw him pulled out? I didn't like it. You know, it's uh, it is something that they have done over the last couple of years with mm-hmm. him. He's he hasn't pitched more than six innings, and I can't remember how long it was, but it's the longest streak of an active starter. Um, but in that situation, you you throw that stuff aside. You know, I mean, the guy's got the hot hand. Yeah, he's about to go through the lineup for the third time, but. I mean, he had a two-hitter through. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I really would have liked to see what would have happened if they kept him in. But, you know, that's how it goes. Yeah. He, I mean, he's a Cy Young Award winner. Were I you mean, kind of surprised that a lot of people weren't riding him a little more from his reactions during the uh, preseason before the season started? He was kind of voicing his displeasure about the way things were handled. And were you surprised more people weren't really on him? No, I think people like um, when athletes, especially in baseball, uh, voice their opinion. You've seen how Trevor Bauer has been dealing with the Reds and, uh, and the Indians before that. So I think I like it when guys say what they are thinking and, and let you know how they feel. And I think Blake Snell is a great pitcher and, and a face for the MLB for sure. One of the things that Kevin Cash has really done is he's done things quite unorthodox compared to a lot of the different managers. Uh, you've seen his his shifting when he uh, has certain players yeah. at bat. Four outfielders. Four outfielders. What is this, softball? Yeah, you got a rover out got there? A, got a rover. <laughs> 
you know. So uh, maybe it's even mush ball that he's thinking about. But uh, but hey, it works. I mean, it got them to where they were. Yeah, you know? hell of a season. One hell win away season. from being in the seventh game, which is where they all strive to be. Right, the opportunity to uh, bring home the the trophy. Uh, let's also talk about Mr. Turner. Mr. Turner kind of uh, did things in an unorthodox way, and uh, he also uh, comes under a little heat today. <coughs> yeah, he just didn't give a didn't give a rat to nothing other than kissing his wife after he had the trophy. And what did he well, kind of screwed that up for a day or whatever? Well, yeah, but what I don't get is they pull him out in the ninth inning or the eighth inning. Because they find out that he tested positive for COVID. I mean, isn't the whole purpose of testing these people daily to have the results in before they start playing the game? I mean, what well, is that Well, he had an inconclusive test the day before. And so they didn't know if he had it or not. And then they tested him again, just him, because he was the only inconclusive test. But still, yeah. if, if it's inconclusive, keep him off the roster. Right. Because you out. don't know if he's got it or not. Yeah. And they screwed up there, you know. Definitely screwed up, and that was unfortunate for uh, the situation. And now he's uh, having a little heat thrown his way. There wasn't enough heat thrown his way during the uh, series, evidently, by the by the Tampa Bay Rays. So yeah, Charlie Morton needs on. to step it up. Right now we're going to go out and talk to a very special guest of ours, uh, Blaze Lanfear. He's with the Portland Pioneer Baseball Club. It was uh, originally back in the Civil War era in the mid to late 1860s that this team was uh, formed and played representative of the region. So, Blaze, how, and I know from a discussion you and I had earlier, how long have you been involved in this, not just in the Portland market, but also in other parts of the country that you've traveled to or lived in? I started uh, playing vintage ball in 2001, so this would have been my 20th season, if you will. Uh, I started in upstate New York, uh, right outside of Rochester, uh, at Genesee Country Village and Museum, uh, built a field specifically to specifications of the era, and developed a league. We had a four-team league there uh, that was started in 2001 uh, with about 60 players, and they also had two all-female teams um, that dressed in uh, period clothing. so uh, that's how I got started in it. Um, I had moved from Connecticut out to Rochester uh, for work. I had planned on playing uh, for a team in Connecticut, uh, but then when I got an offer for a job in New York, went out there and was delighted they were starting that league and got involved with them from the beginning and was there for six years. Blaze, how, how does a guy go from just being a baseball purist and a baseball lover like you are to being involved in something like this? Was it just you stumbled across it, or is it something that you had your eye on and ended up uh, making your way to that organization? Uh, from the time I was uh, a child, I was interested in the history of baseball. Uh, my dad was uh, originally a sports writer, also a sports cartoonist in central Connecticut. Uh, so I was set a daily diet of sports. I did play some ball, played some football briefly, um, and played some baseball uh, when I was younger, but I was a late bloomer, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always felt I had a good eye uh, for line drives, not for the long ball, uh, and also had good hands. So this is a game that 
I thought that I could adapt myself to and focus on uh, catching, my, my catching skills uh, behind the plate, uh, that probably defensively that's my greatest asset, and I'm also a line drive hitter. And um, the rules of the game tend to lend itself more to that, not necessarily the long ball mm-hmm. like the modern game. One of the things, too, I wanted you to bring up and, and talk with us about is is the difference between back in Rochester and Portland. Uh, and you do play for the Portland Pioneers, which is Portland, Oregon, for those that are listening and may not be aware. But, you know, just really explain to us the difference of the game as you see it from your Rochester, New York experience to your Portland, Oregon experience. Is there a lot of difference or not much at all? Well, the biggest difference is back east, the towns were physically uh, closer, uh, the high population centers. So it was easier for a team in Rochester, say, to play other Rochester teams or uh, even venture as far as uh, Buffalo or Syracuse, 70 or 80 miles to compete with other teams. Actually could have been done as a major event or for a tournament, uh, even back in, in the 1860s and 70s, certainly. Um, as the professional game started to evolve. Whereas uh, out here in the Pacific Northwest, um, towns of critical mass of population would have been farther apart. So uh, the, the residue of that, if you will, um, most of the teams in vintage baseball are recreations of actual teams that existed, as are we. Uh, it's just there were not many teams back then certainly venturing out of the what is now the Portland metro area. Um, but uh, there was the Pioneers, and the Pioneers were the only organized team. They were the first in 1866, and they actually helped get other teams started. Uh, by the following year, there were 17 teams uh, from, I would say, from uh, Salem and farther north, uh, probably as far north as Olympia. Um, but it, it definitely started to explode after that. But the interesting thing about the pioneers is most of them were not originally from Oregon. They were people that settled here from New York, Ohio, Michigan, Maine, Massachusetts. Uh, the most notable one as far as the baseball world was concerned. Um, uh, Joseph Bucktell was from Indiana. So they all came out here for different reasons. And, uh, their worlds uh, collided, and as far as business, and that's how the club started in Portland in 1866. Some of them already had some baseball experience back east, where the game was better known, and uh, that is how they got into it. So the the differences are just more teams back there, uh, more interest, I would say, in vintage ball. Uh, but we've got some diehard. Uh, followers here and people interested out here. I never have let that discourage me. And um, I didn't found the po- uh, the Pioneers, but I've been captain for a decade. Uh, I got to give a shout out to uh, my teammates who were involved in founding it. Is Dave Cornbread McCloskey and Greg Crazy Legs Moore. I have to mention them because uh, without them, we wouldn't have the Pioneer Club as it is today. Does uh, Greg have a pretty good recipe for the cornbread? <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's Dave. Dave oh, Dave, cornbread. I'm sorry. And, um, yeah, Dave, Dave <clears throat> can make anything. He could make hardtack. He could make 
um, sort of the coffee they drank during the Civil War, I suppose, if you wanted it for those specs, uh, he could do it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they know quite a bit. You know, if you have a storm coming and you need to put up a, a tent very quickly to protect yourself, you want those two gentlemen around you, let me tell you, because <laughs> they know how to do it. So where's the, uh, where's the uh, Crazy Legs nickname come from? Uh, the crazy legs, I think, is just a reference to um, how he runs and, it's, and not quickly. Uh, <laughs> that's my, that's the <laughs> and I, apo- I apologize if I got that wrong. I, I apologize greatly. Um, <laughs> I've been I've been known as freight train almost my entire time. So do you, is that because you uh, chug around the bases or you go two two or what? What's the deal with that? The interesting thing was uh, a player on another team gave me that nickname. We had the bases loaded late in the game, and I was on third. And um, there was a grounder uh, to the deep infield, and I just headed home because we had two outs. And I collided with the catcher pretty hard, and he dropped the ball. And uh, one of the guys on the other team said, you hit him like a freight train. And so that's it. That's, that's where it came from. There's, there's, pro- uh, he, he, he dropped the ball uh-huh. and the inning continued. There's probably a few people in the audience that are going, what's the difference between the old era of baseball and the new era of baseball? Why don't you explain some of the nuances of the old style baseball game that maybe people would go, really? That's the way it is? So kind of run us through that. Sure. Absolutely. You want to talk rules first or equipment? Sure. Now let's go ahead and talk about the rules first, and then we'll go to the equipment. Okay, I think one of the uh, most interesting things about the rules is no gloves. In 1866, uh, the Pioneers are playing uh, the 1864, uh, what became known as the 1864 rules that were developed in late 63 by a national organization, and they adopted them um, in 1866 when they organized they adopted these 1864 rules and uh one of the things that's most interesting about it i think you know if you overrun first base you're live so think think about close plays at first if you overrun it yeah uh you could be tagged out Uh, a kg first base tender could uh, drop the ball and turn around and tag you if you're not paying attention if you overrun first to your you knowledge, first, you have to do one of two things. You have to get back to first, or you keep going. <laughs> keep to going to second. To your knowledge, with 19, 1869 being the first year the, the Reds actually played as a professional team, were those rule changes of the way people ran and you know had to stop at the base, or did, were they allowed to uh, round the base at that time? Or are you aware of that? So that- that that kept uh, different rules evolved at different rates, and, okay. and that one would have changed by then. Uh, there was no infield fly rule, so for folks familiar with that, uh, that doesn't happen. You know, if you have a fast runner on first, that kind of thing, a pop up in the infield, uh, a quote unquote gentleman would catch the ball at second, but somebody might drop it and say the sun got in their eyes, mm-hmm. so that the runner on first has to move and advance to get the fast runner out by tagging the runner out at second you know um, so it's it's pre uh, infield fly rule that kind of thing uh no gloves okay so no mm-hmm. gloves is the most stark thing that people see when they see it gloves really evolved uh by position uh with the last players to have it uh, being the outfielders so uh but in 1866 nobody has a glove 
Um, wood bats, of course, no aluminum. <laughs> you know, it's all wood bats then. And the bats being very similar, but could have been up to another um, uh, half an inch in diameter versus what they are now, today. Uh, the ball uh, also different. You've got uh, what was called a lemon peel ball. It was one piece of leather as opposed to two, uh, and it formed in an X. So it's called a lemon peel uh, ball. So that style in the seams would have been very different. Um, uh, pitchers that have seen it have looked at it, and, and professional pitchers, too, that I've shown the ball to and replica balls from the era as they look at it as if, oh, okay, what can I do with this? With the, with the different seams on it, that sort of thing. Uh, but pitchers in this era had to throw underhand. Uh, they're uh, 45 feet from home plate. Uh, still, uh, you'd have 90-foot bases. So you've got 90-foot bases. Wow. Uh, as far as the ball coming off the bat, where the ball lands coming off the bat, fair or foul, um, that's what it remains. So unlike the modern game, if you hit a, a little shot up in the air, it bounces fair and rolls out foul, uh, you know, three feet in front of the catcher, that's a live ball. Um, so that, that keeps the game moving. <laughs> People think this game is slower, um, but without advertisements and, and those kind of things, the game can go actually much more quickly sometimes than the modern game. Blaze, I... One of the things that I really noticed about uh, the experience of watching the game uh, reflected me back to the time as a kid when you had certain games that you played like 500 or, you know, you, you called it a bunch of different things. But that situation where first bouncer fly, first bounce, go ahead and yeah. explain the difference and how that really works. I, I find that uh, awesome. Oh, absolutely. You know, a lot of people who play the vintage game, um, they look at those of us who like to play the bounder as if um, we're somehow uh, less masculine, to use a term from back then. And, and I say, no, see, what I like about the bounder, and the bounder would still have, they were still playing the bounder in 1866 in Portland, which is why we do it. It's also a good visual. And the way the bounder works is, um, where the ball lands, I mean, if you, if you catch it in the air, in the outfield is the best example. Uh, on the fly, the batter's out, but also if the outfielder can get to it on the first bounce and catch it, then the batter's out. Now, the runners can still advance mm -hmm. after that. But what's most <clears throat> interesting about that, I mean, I've seen, I've seen folks, I saw folks in New York in the outfield who were very fast that could have a ball hit over their head and still run and catch it on the hop and, and turn around and, you know, uh, make a play after that, after retiring the batter. So that's kind of frustrating when you can, in this game, hit a shot, a 300-foot shot or whatever over the, over the center fielder's head, they catch it, and yet um, somebody can get a three- or four-foot hit in front of the plate that bounces foul and they end up getting on base. So there can be a great equalizer with the bounder rule. Um, you also can play longer, I think. <laughs> and as, as we get older, we appreciate that <laughs> um, with, with the bounder rule. But you can have a lot more um, interesting, I think, situations um, uh, in the game that you wouldn't necessarily see in the modern game because of that. The bounder definitely causes people to adjust how they play.
Talk to us as well, uh, Blaze, about the situation of, I mean, we had just recently, in the, a couple of weeks ago, we had done a, a show on the Chicago Cubs and the New York Mets in 1969. Obviously, Wrigley did not have any uh, lights at that time. So the, the baseball, uh, Civil War era baseball, uh, didn't have any lights, but also you were looking at a guy with a megaphone. And I'm sure there was some uh, people that were confused when a person had actually scored a run. Sure, yeah. Um, scoring a run, there were different. You want to get in the customs as to what they did? Sure, please. You know, some places, some places they rang a bell when they would score a run. There was hmm. no penalty for that, by the way, but some umpires would, would tell that, you know, and, and that may be just a little bit apocryphal, but some people use it, you know, for fun and entertainment. There aren't necessarily a lot of accounts of it. There are accounts of umpires, and umpire basically was like the god on the field. The, the go- umpire is the deity at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Their word is supposed to matter. It doesn't mean they didn't get heckled, and they certainly got heckled by by fans or cranks, as some people called them then. Um but, uh, yeah, you know, in, in, in that era, that was, the, that was one of the things that, um, that you, ha- you had to focus on as far as understanding the game. Okay, when does the run count? And they called it an ace. They had different terms for it. Um, you know, you, you, in most cases, yeah, you cross the plate, you cross the plate. That's, that's a run. So in most situations, it's going to look the same. Um, and the umpire would not have necessarily announced that. We tend to have an announcer just so that people do know what's going on. So when we can have an announcer, that's good. That adds to flavor of the game because otherwise people might not necessarily know. Or if you use a bell, they might not know what that's for either. Uh, but that's, that's almost a more modern um, vintage baseball tradition that some of the teams use, some of the purists don't like it. I still like the bell. <laughs> You know, I just I, I think it's a fun tradition. It's not necessarily the the number one as far as historical accuracy. You're trying to balance fun and and the accuracy. I think depending on the competitiveness and the importance of the game or the competitiveness of the leagues, if that helps. As a player who's played both on the East Coast and the West Coast, is there a difference in the fun level, or does it stay pretty much the same and how serious do the players take it from back in New York to Oregon? I, I think it's very serious there because I played in tournaments back there and I played in leagues where the games uh, mattered in the standings, uh, whether or not you were uh, qualifying to play for a trophy or a tournament. When you're playing for a trophy, you know, we kept scoring all of these games, but when you're playing for a trophy, people play differently when they know there's a trophy or a championship on the line. They re- they really do. They you know they tend to really really focus more on their play. Um, even the teams back in this era, they had what was called the first nine. Uh, a lot of them did. That would have been their best club. Uh, they have a second nine if they had enough players interested. Third nine, that kind of thing. Uh, third nine was sometimes called the muffin nine. That was your your weaker nine that may be supporters, financial supporters, but not necessarily good good athletes. Uh, but your best team you put forward was called your first nine. So they had that kind of situation then too, where 
uh, they started to distinguish between, okay, what's the best team uh, we can put on the field? Out here, um, it, it tends to be friendlier because we know each other. We played on different teams, that kind of thing. But the competition uh, can get intense when you have fans. That, that always makes a difference. Um, and, and you're not playing just what they would call traditionally a friendly match. You're taking it up a notch on the competitive level. Um, that's the thing, you know. Uh, base, baseball is baseball, and you have a scoreboard. You have, as I say, you have a trophy. Uh, it it can change the tenor of the game. And and some of those games back there were really they were very in, they were very intense. You know, I was on a team that won the national silver ball, and in 2003, and we had to beat five teams in less than 48 hours basically um and so that was that was an arduous task to do that there's some very good clubs around the country did you have to do that sober you definitely want to be but i I would i would be a liar if i said that uh everybody everybody on the team was a (laughs) non-drinker maybe that's why he was crazy legs (laughs) yeah in, in fact, they even had um, uh, an old-time saloon where they did make alcohol at, at one of the buildings there <laughs> at the museum. So, yeah, you know, they they had that. And uh, if, you, if you knew the right person, you could get a sample. So, <laughs> Gosh, I got to know the right guy. Uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about uh, the uniforms that you wear and what makes everything different. And... I guess on top of that one, uh, as a lay person who enjoys the game, what do I call it? Do I call it Civil War era? Do we call it, you know, you tell me what we should call it. it it's best known as vintage baseball. Okay. Baseball being two words was very common back then. Baseball as, you know, as two words um, in, in 19th century accounts, almost right up until the, the 20th century. It's it's written that way in many, many articles. Uh, so calling it vintage baseball, the modern recreation, I, I think is probably the best reference to it as to what the game actually is. Uh, where it's differentiated is the rules changed quickly back then. So we'll, we'll say to each other, hey, well, what rules do you play? Well, we play 1864 modified or, okay. or something of that nature, which is really what we do. We play modified rules so um any place where you played if it had peculiarities because most of the games that were played back then they didn't have fences okay this is pre-professional era and so you had to have rules about trees where a ball might land in a tree or that kind of thing in dead center or left or right field that kind of thing you'd have to have rules uh for that in mind uh and consider those kinds of things so those would be field rules you'd make changes that adapt it and you say okay we modify our rules we modify our rules because we have a tree in in uh, right center field <laughs> and so here's what happens if it lands in the tree and they usually if it's uh, near the field of play that's a live ball you know or it's a or it's a double uh in places in in upstate new york where we had and this goes back to a rule way back in upstate new york is over the fence or over the fence on a bounder, bounding over the fence, either way was a ground rule double. And people say, why isn't it a home run? Well, back then, you know, the horse hide was expensive. 
And it was expensive <laughs> to have a baseball, and most teams didn't have, you know, a whole box of baseballs. It wasn't like that. It was the prize. In fact, it was the trophy in the game. It was the the, the team that made the challenge would put the put the ball up, and the win. If the other team won, that would be their trophy was the ball. So it was highly highly prized. You see some of these even in the, in the Hall of Fame now with the writing, with the date of the game, and that sort of thing. Uh, they're prized and they're they're incredibly valuable. Those early uh, baseballs. But in Rochester, the rule for teams in that at that time in that era was yeah if it flies over the fence uh it's a delay of game the delay of game penalty is a double but both teams would run out and find the ball that would be there would be a stoppage of play and we'd run out and some folks would run around the fence depending on how athletic they were they'd climb the fence and climb over and get it and that was that was a big moment (laughs) in the game uh, we were we were fortunate enough for our games in New York to have announcers. Again, announcers can add a lot uh, to the game and explaining the game to modern fans the differences. We're talking with Blaze Lamphere. He is uh, one of one of many who's played vintage baseball over his, uh, his time. But uh, wanted you to kind of talk to us about three individual names that uh, you can probably share some about. One is Joseph Bucktell, which you mentioned a little bit. Also, James Steele, sure. and then the legendary Frank Warren story, which is going to shock some people. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, uh, Bucktell. Um, Bucktell was, as I say, he came here from Indiana. He was uh, an inventor. If there were ever a scholar athlete um, and a bit of a Superman in a way, um, it was Joseph Bucktell. Uh, when he came here from Indiana, he set up a photography studio and was one of the first photographers in Oregon. So his photographs are very prized uh, because he was a photographer. We're fortunate enough to have an outstanding photo of the first nine of the Pioneer Baseball Club, which is on our Facebook page. Um, and also it's on the Wikipedia page, too. Uh, somebody has it on there. Um so that's, that's a very early example. They have an 1866 photo of a team. We're very fortunate. And so our uniforms are modeled right after um, that photo because uh, we know we're, we're fortunate. Most teams do not have something like that. So we know who those people were. He was um, the left fielder, so first left fielder in the first game um, in uh, the Pacific Northwest. Yes, I'm proud to say, yeah, Portland had baseball before Seattle did by six years. Awesome. Uh, and that first game is October 1866 uh, down in Oregon City uh, at what is now uh, the land surrounding the Interpretive Center for the end of the Oregon Trail. So that's where they, they ended up playing that game. And it was a big event. They had a, you know, um, they had a, a breakfast. They actually fed them first when they went down there. Um, Probably to try to slow them down, but it didn't. It didn't slow them <laughs> didn't down work. that day. The Pioneers won, <laughs> but Joseph Bucktell really is the father of baseball in Oregon. He doesn't get a lot of credit for that, but he truly was. He uh, won the first championship with the Pioneers. He revitalized them as interest tended to die off, tended to die off with the club. He revitalized them ten years later in 1876. It was the U.S. Centennial. And he won a championship with that. 
Um, and he had some involvement also with uh, the professional leagues as they started getting going here, professional baseball in Portland. Um, he's also known for having been, he really was a jack of all trades. He was sheriff for Multnomah County at one point. He was fire chief of the city of Portland in 1864. Uh, he invented a uh, fire extinguisher and had patents on it. He had a number of patents and also the first uh, fire boat uh, for the city of Portland. So Bucktail was um, was really well known uh, for what he did. He was also a self-promoter, to be fair. But what is true that he did do uh, in his mid-30s was um, run the 150 in 15 seconds, mm-hmm. and they used the stopwatch to do this. This was an event. He ran barefooted. Uh, and did the 150 in 15 seconds. That so that's well documented. <laughs> um, uh, so no Nike. No Nike. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's, that's Buckdale. But James Steele, uh, as an industrialist, what I know most about James Steele is because I work for the Port of Portland, so I'll put a plug in there. Mm-hmm. Um, James Steele was one of the original, um, I believe he was... Uh, a treasure. I do know that he was a commissioner at the Port of Portland very early on. So that's uh, how I, I found out more about uh, James Steele uh, was through my work. Uh, and his brother also uh, played for the team. Uh, but most interesting is Frank Manley Warren. Frank Manley Warren was 18. He was the youngest player on the original Pioneers. He worked for um, uh, Western Union actually, and eventually became an industrialist. He was quite successful for himself. He came from Maine and started a fish cannery uh, here, and Warrendale is actually named for him near the Bonneville Dam area in the Mm -hmm. Columbia Gorge. Uh, So Warrendale, uh, named for Frank Manley Warren. When when Warren was was celebrating his 40th anniversary in 1912, and celebrate his 40th wedding anniversary, he bought his wife a ticket on Titanic. Uh, bought himself one, too. And they went to France. They sailed uh, on Titanic on its um, fateful journey. And wow. he put his wife in a rowboat. And in the confusion, she thought he also got into the boat with her. There was about 35 people in the boat. Um, and he was not in the boat. He stayed on I, I'm in the rowboat. He's, he's in the lifeboat. He stayed on Titanic and, and uh, was seen, other accounts say he was he was helping other women get into rowboats, helping people into rowboats um, or lifeboats at the time. And uh, so she never saw him again. His body was never recovered. If it was, it was never identified, although there is a memorial here. His wife is buried in Riverview Cemetery in, in Portland, and there's a memorial to him here as well. Uh, so, And uh, one of his houses still stands here. So um, that's a, our, our link to Titanic. Uh, the Warrens were the only, weren't the only people from Oregon on Titanic, but they were the only first-class passengers wow. there. Wow. So that's our tie-in, and actually... That month, that same month, um, late in April 1912, when Titanic sank, she told her story to the Oregonian. So that's available on, on microphone. It's probably available online. You can imagine, probably yeah. find 
Very so, interesting um, stuff. Very interesting. Blaze, uh, we definitely appreciate you spending some time and reflecting through the history of the way baseball and vintage baseball has uh, transpired through time. And uh, can we tap back into you some other time and maybe get your uh, modern-day thoughts of baseball at that time? Absolutely. That'd be okay. wonderful. Where sure. I can talk about the, some of our current players, too. Sounds good. <laughs> so, we'll do it. That's great. Appreciate it. Blaze Lanfear, he is, uh, well, he knows more baseball, old-time baseball, than even the old fart. Hef, take her away. All right, all right. Well, what do you got for us, man? <clears throat> I'll just give it to you straight out. That's right. What did I say last week? I had a good you said week. A lot of things. I don't remember. Well, yeah, that's true. But in terms of my five picks for the NFL, first week had a good week. Second week had a bad week. I felt that this last week, week seven. I was going to be somewhere in the middle, and uh, that's exactly what happened. I ended up two, two, and one with my picks. So you know that's good enough for a multi-million-dollar contract in most sports, but not sports gambling. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Well, uh, we'll go through my week seven picks. We have five games as usual. Uh, I said. Carolina Panthers at New Orleans Saints. The Saints would cover the spread at minus seven and a half. That did not happen, Kevin or Rory. That did not happen. The score was 27 to 24, New Orleans. They won the game, did not cover the spread. So uh, that's a loss for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, all right, game two. Uh, Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys. At the Washington football team, it was uh, the spread was the Cowboys at plus one, meaning they were expected to lose by one. Uh, I said they were going to cover that and likely win the game. They lost three to twenty-five. So they had it just, just, just a bit outside, just a little bit outside, but. Then we start getting better. The Green Bay Packers at the Houston Texans. The spread was minus three. I said they would likely cover that, and I would take them on the spread. If anything, it's going to be a push. What happened? Green Bay won the game 35-20. to 20 And didn't the Dallas quarterback get hurt? Now I think this week they're going with Danny Bonaducci <laughs> or something. Yeah. What's his name? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's Danny Bonaducci. Bonaducci. Yeah, he was the guy that used to be, well, before you guys were born, there was a show called The Partridge Family. I've heard of it. Danny, you know, Danny, he's got his own issues, uh, off-the-field troubles, if you will. Mm -hmm. We won't go into those in specifics. This is a G-rated show for a G-rated audience. Out of hell with it. Yeah, that's not true. But, um, yeah, so I got that one. Felt good about that. I'm Uh, glad. Now, your Cleveland Browns, Kevin. You know, what can I say? You know, they're just, you know, better than anybody wants to believe. <laughs> well, they were losing most of the game to the Cincinnati Bengals, but what a game it turned out to be. Uh, what did Baker have? Five passing touchdowns? 
It's late in the game. At yeah. one point, I think he had uh, 21 out of 22, and the one that was incomplete during that period was a uh, stop the clock. Wow. That's that's impressive. And Spike, uh, Spike in the ball. The spread on that game was the Browns at minus three, meaning they were expected to win by three, and uh, that's what they did. So it was a push. wasn't a win. wasn't a loss. Uh, if you picked that, you didn't make any money, but you didn't lose any money. That's, that's important. That's, that's right. Vegas hates that. Yeah. And uh, game five for week seven, we had the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the Las Vegas Raiders. It was minus three on the spread again for the Buccaneers, and they handled them. It was 45 to 20 was the final. And so there you go. I went 2-2-1. Two, two, and one. I'll job. take it. Yeah, heck uh, yeah. You know, I did. It's basically a push for the whole week, is what you It's like say. running out of gas on Powell Boulevard. You got to push the car. Well, exactly. Well, uh, Gronkowski had a good game in Gronk. Vegas. We didn't know how he's going to do. Well, yeah. you know, <laughs> we it's about, about time that. that he stayed sober long enough to play the game. Yes. Yeah. Right. I don't know why it's all about drinking, but it's about it's a drinking game here. So. And, and one last thing for week seven. Yes. You don't want to forget this. I, every week I give a five way parlay on the money line. Didn't hit it the week before, but you know what? I hit it Did in you? week seven. Yeah, the Eagles won that game by one point. Damn, that was close. Yeah, that oh was a close gosh. one. But I went Eagles, Bills, Saints, Chiefs, Rams, and it went through. Did so, you borrow money to make that bet from Daniel Jones, who tripped over whatever yard line it was that just decided it was gonna? No, I should have though. But sniper from the dead. Yeah, it was a sniper. Yeah, that and. You know, if you go back through all the calls off different, you know, stations and programs who called that, there are some really fun ones. <laughs> there really are. I mean, what a, what a play, you know, just by yourself, 80 yards. I think it was the longest run a quarterback, maybe even a player in general, has ever had in the NFL without scoring. That's, That's amazing. <laughs> That's like the Steve O'Neill 98-yard punt. Think about that. That's not easy to do. No, it's not. No, it's First not. of all, you really he kicked that out of the end zone. Your, yeah, you, really. You're yeah. back in your end zone. You kick it from the one yard right. to the one yard line. That was over a yeah. hundred yards. That yeah. Time. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is incredible. Of course, I saw a little a video bit of roll, that the other but day. you know that's okay. Yeah. Well, roll counts. Uh, well, should we go on to week eight? Let's do it. Let's do it. Come on. All right. I'll give you guys my picks, and uh, you know I want to know what you guys think as well. But uh, week eight. That's halfway through the season. I know. It's just Man, that's wow. one thing that I've always noticed about the NFL is that it goes quicker. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it's like to just be a college fan, but I would think it would be similar. But yeah. the NFL season just flies by. Well, yeah, and the college one that's going to go even quicker this year. Yeah, it will. but uh, game number one, we got the New England Patriots at Rory. My Bills. Yeah, the Buffalo My Bills. The spread right now is minus three and a half for the Buffalo Bills, and I would take it. I really would. You know, the the one thing that's a little concerning about this is New England's secondary is actually a sleeper. They're really good. Really good. They do a great Unless job. Unless they do what they're Cody talking Brothers. about doing, getting rid of uh, that cornerback mm-hmm. yeah, that, that cornerback. they got from Buffalo. Yeah, that'd be Mr. a mistake. Gilmore. Mr. Gilmore, yes. defensive player of the year. But anyways, yeah, I'd take, I'd take won't that be next year, spread. But... Minus three. I think Buffalo's going to win this game. Um, yeah, so do I. 
Yeah, I, well, yeah, didn't need to hear that from you. And I won't you, you, know, you know, you know why Buffalo is going to be so good, don't you? Uh-uh. Just, Mr. Poyer. Yeah, go Beefs. Yeah, not only a go Beef, but a go Browns. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah Jordan. He's a good guy too. Yeah. No, I, I think he's uh, from Astoria. Yeah, he is and, indeed. And every year he goes back to Astoria and does a, a yep. youth football camp. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. But uh, game two, Packers. At the Minnesota Vikings. Right now the spread is minus six and a half for the Packers. And I love to see that when you got minus six and a half and not minus seven or seven and a half. Yeah. I think they're going to win this game by a touchdown. I would take Green Bay at minus six and a half. The Minnesota defense is just, it's not what it once was. It certainly isn't. It's uh, lacking a lot. And you saw the Minnesota Vikings make a trade over the uh, the last week where they got rid of uh, the guy that had just been there about six weeks. That's right. And Gakwe, who they mm-hmm. got from Jacksonville, mm-hmm. and they shipped him off to Baltimore. Crazy. So, yeah, the movement is happening. Yeah, so I'd take Green Bay at minus six and a half on that. Uh, another uh, interesting thing about this week, and it was the same for last week, I'm taking all spreads. I'm going all spreads. So, game three, we've got... The Raiders. I didn't do that as good as Chris Berman, but the Las Vegas Raiders are playing at Cleveland. Kevin's Cleveland Browns. And the spread is minus two and a half for Cleveland. I like it. I like it. Let's take it. So let's don't forget that the week after this Raiders game, the Browns also have a bye week. And Kevin Stefanski has not given the team yet a Monday victory off. Uh-huh. So they've been remaining focused, and we'll see if they continue to stay yeah, focused. Yeah, I mean, when you got a bye week, you lay it all out there. There's no reason not to. Time to head out of town. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I might feel a little bit differently if they were playing in the uh, black toilet bowl that they have there in Las Vegas. But at Cleveland, I think that they will do it. So, um, yeah, Cleveland minus two and a half, I'd take it. Game number four. San Francisco 49ers playing at Seattle, and the spread is Seattle minus three. I think. At I might the, have that backwards. No. Don't, you, don't you think they have that backwards? No. No. No, I don't think that at no. all. I think Seattle's going to win this game probably by a touchdown, honestly. Um, but minus three, I think. At the worst, you got to push right there. So I'm taking Seattle at minus three, to be honest with you. I just, and I've said it for years, I've said it since he went from New England to San Francisco. Jimmy G's just not the guy. He is not the guy. Not There's the a guy. lot of people really in love with that guy, but, yeah. uh, you know, for whatever reason, I guess. Well, he went to a, a Super Bowl. Last well, year, he lost a Super Bowl yeah, too. He, he, he did lose one, yeah. but he, he got there. Yeah, well, that's cool. Some feel that it was the coach that got them there. Yeah, well, but, I don't yeah. think many feel it was the quarterback. But uh, oh, game man. five, we've got the Los Angeles Rams playing at Miami. Miami, not bad this year, but you know what? Now they're starting Tua. I. I think there's a lot to pay attention to that game because yeah. it's a short week for the Rams, plus okay. they're having to go all the way from Los Angeles to Miami. That's true. And then you'll wait and see if the crowdless well, Florida's one of those Not states be where they I would Yeah, Florida is one of those states where they just allow whoever and everybody. Right. So we'll see if the emotion can uh, feed into two of being 
you know, his first start. Yeah, but you know what? I think uh, it's not going to go as planned for the old Miami Dolphins. And Los Angeles, who looked real good in Week 7, especially their defense and their secondary, I think that they are going to cover the spread, which is minus 3.5 for the Rams. Sneaky good Rams. Sneaky good Rams. They really are. And, And I'll say it again. I like their coach. Um... I like the coach's wife. Well, sorry I said that, but I did. I like the way she looks. I, yeah. Uh, don't know her uh, personally, but I've seen her. Yeah. Watching uh, Hard Knocks. I don't know if she's the uh, smartest tool in the shed, but that's okay. That's okay. If she's yeah. in the shed. She, you know. Yeah, whatever. There you go. Uh, and I'll leave you guys with one last thing. Don't forget, I'm two for three on my five-way parlays so far. Moneyline. Specifically, five-way parlay I'm taking this week. Week eight in the NFL. Green Bay, Kansas City, Los Angeles Rams, Tampa Bay, and Tennessee. I, feel I like good it. About it. I, I like it. I feel good about it. We should all feel good about it because Parker feels good about it. Yep. Roadhog, Pihoff, it's been fun. It's been real. It's been real fun. That's right. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to head on out of here and okay. uh, wait and see what happens next week when we are That's on right. again with Old Fart Sports. That's right. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Catch you later. You got it. This has been a Podland Productions production recorded at Downstairs Studio in Portland, Oregon. For more information on Podland and for more Podland podcasts, Go to podland.productions. While you're there, subscribe to the email newsletter for sneak peeks, giveaways, and more. Thanks for listening. Podland Productions.